Brought to you by GSK. Learn about commercial coverage for Shingrix, Zoster Vaccine Recombinant Adjuvanted, by visiting coverageshingrix.com. Hello and welcome to the April 4th, 2023 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'm looking forward to giving you a quick overview of the new material you'll find if you go to annals.org. Let's get started. The first article I want to highlight is a cohort study of more than 9,000 persons that found that in asymptomatic middle-aged persons without known cardiovascular disease, subclinical obstructive coronary atherosclerosis is associated with a more than eightfold elevated risk for myocardial infarction. Subclinical coronary atherosclerosis precedes ischemic heart disease and may begin many years before clinical disease develops. For more than 50 years, obstructive coronary artery disease, defined as a luminal coronary stenosis of 50% or greater, has been considered a key feature of elevated risk. In the past decade, however, the extent of atherosclerosis in the coronary tree, as well as specific morphologic features of the atherosclerotic plaque, have been acknowledged as other important risk factors. Researchers from the University of Copenhagen studied 9,533 asymptomatic persons aged 40 years or older without known cardiovascular disease to define characteristics of subclinical coronary atherosclerosis associated with the development of myocardial infarction. Participants were assessed using computed tomography and geography to diagnose obstructive coronary atherosclerosis. The authors found that 54% of persons had no subclinical coronary atherosclerosis. Among the 46% of persons diagnosed with subclinical coronary atherosclerosis, 36% had non-obstructive disease and 10% had obstructive disease. Among persons diagnosed with the condition, subclinical coronary atherosclerosis was found in 61% of male participants and 36% of women. According to the authors, identification of luminal obstructive or extensive subclinical coronary atherosclerosis provides potentially clinically relevant incremental risk assessment in patients without suspected or known ischemic heart disease, undergoing cardiac CT and or electrocardiogram-gated chest CT for other clinical indications. An accompanying editorial highlights that this research provides an opportunity to study the contemporary natural history of coronary artery disease in the absence of intervention, where neither patient nor clinician were aware of the CT and geography findings. The authors add that the study also provides invaluable data about event rates and prevalence of asymptomatic coronary artery disease that will inform public health prevention strategies and ongoing clinical trials of targeting preventative therapies in persons screened for coronary artery disease. In the U.S., Medicare Advantage programs are a type of managed care program that Medicare beneficiaries in some geographic areas can opt to join. Medicare Advantage programs woo beneficiaries with benefits such as dental care, vision care, hearing aids, and transportation. Despite the increasing popularity of Medicare Advantage, Medicare currently links hospital reimbursement to readmissions and mortality based solely on outcomes among fee-for-service beneficiaries. Whether including Medicare Advantage beneficiaries, who now account for nearly half of all Medicare beneficiaries, in the evaluation of hospital performance effects ranking is unknown. Researchers conducted a cross-sectional analysis of hospitals participating in the Hospital Reimbursement Reduction Program or Hospital Value-Based Purchasing Program. They then calculated 30-day risk-adjusted readmissions and mortality 
for acute myocardial infarction, heart failure, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and pneumonia based on only fee-for-service beneficiaries and then both fee-for-service and Medicare Advantage beneficiaries. The researchers found that among the hospitals in the top performing group for readmissions and mortality based on fee-for-service beneficiaries, between 21 and 30 percent were reclassified to a lower performing group when Medicare Advantage beneficiaries were included in the measures. They also found that a similar percentage of low-performing hospitals were reclassified to higher-performing groups using the same criteria. According to the authors, their findings have important policy implications for federal efforts to evaluate hospital quality, particularly because Medicare Advantage is expected to soon be the dominant source of Medicare coverage in the United States. The next article addresses drug repurposing, which refers to the process of determining whether existing drugs might be effective for treating a new disease, such as COVID-19. Remdesivir and malnupiravir were the only two repurposed antivirals that were approved for emergency use during the COVID-19 pandemic. Both drugs received their emergency use authorization based on a single industry-funded phase three trial, which was launched after evidence of in vitro activity against SARS-CoV-2. In contrast, for tenofovir disoproxyl fumarate, also known as TDF, little in vitro evidence was generated, no randomized trials for early treatment were conducted, and the drug was not considered for authorization. Yet by the summer of 2020, observational evidence suggested a substantially lower risk of severe COVID-19 in TDF users compared with non-users. The authors of this article review the decision-making process for the launching of randomized trials for these three drugs and conclude that observational data in favor of TDF was systematically dismissed, even though no viable alternate explanations were proposed for the lower risk of severe COVID-19 among TDF users. They describe lessons learned from the TDF example during the first two years of the COVID-19 pandemic and propose the use of observational clinical data to guide decisions about the launch of randomized trials during the next public health emergency. The goal is that gatekeepers of randomized trials make better use of the available observational evidence for the repurposing of drugs without commercial value. Next is a Cases in Precision Medicine article. The authors introduce a hypothetical case of a patient who was found to have a genetic variant of uncertain significance at the time of testing that was later found to have clinical relevance. The authors address whether the clinician who ordered the test but is no longer involved in the patient's care has an obligation to find the patient to inform her of the new information about her test findings. Next is a study that examined whether receipt of monoclonal antibodies within two days of a positive COVID-19 test reduced the risk of hospitalization or death compared to persons who were eligible for monoclonal antibody treatment but did not receive it. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration granted emergency use authorization to five different COVID-19 monoclonal antibody treatments at various times between 2020 and 2022. During this time, monoclonal antibody treatments were shown to have reduced COVID-19 viral load and later showed decreased rates of hospitalization and death in some at-risk patients. All five of the previously authorized treatments have since been suspended or revoked by the FDA based on in vitro evidence of evolving loss of efficacy against new COVID-19 variants. However, these treatments were revoked without the availability of randomized trials or real-world data. Researchers from the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center matched data from 2,571 patients treated with monoclonal antibodies with data from 5,135 patients with COVID-19 
who are eligible for monoclonal antibodies but did not receive them. The authors found that treatment with monoclonal antibodies within two days of the diagnosis of COVID-19 was associated with an estimated 39% lower risk for hospitalization or death at 28 days. According to the authors, their results indicate that throughout the pandemic, early treatment with monoclonal antibody treatment significantly reduced severity of COVID-19. They emphasize that their findings should be interpreted with the knowledge that there are currently no FDA-approved monoclonal antibody treatments for the treatment of outpatients with COVID-19, and that the rapid evolution of new variants warrants timely, continuous evaluation of monoclonal antibody treatment approaches. Current clinical guidelines recommend that patients with systolic heart failure receive an ICD, an implantable cardioverter defibrillator, for prevention of sudden cardiac arrest. However, black patients are less likely to receive an ICD than white patients, despite their greater risk profile. The next article reports a randomized trial of a video-based decision support tool that was designed to improve decision-making of black patients eligible for an ICD. Researchers assigned 114 patients to watch a video decision tool featuring a black clinician and patient, 114 patients to watch a video featuring a white clinician and white patient, and 115 patients to receive usual care. The authors found no difference in assent to receive an ICD between individuals who watched a video and those who received usual care. They also found no difference in assent between persons who watched the racially concordant and discordant videos. However, the use of videos increased patient knowledge and decreased the time clinicians spent with study participants. The authors highlight the 40% refusal rate for ICD implantation, noting that aversion to cardiac procedures in Black communities is prevalent and complex in its underpinnings. They call for further research to develop strategies that lead to more patients who would benefit from an ICD to agree to receive one. Healthcare systems are assuming increasing responsibility for the cost of caring for their patients, including older adults who account for a disproportionate share of healthcare costs. A strategy to reduce future spending would be for healthcare systems to identify older adults at risk for costly care to select target populations for interventions to reduce their healthcare burden. In the next article, researchers analyzed data from 8,165 Medicare beneficiaries who were enrolled in NIH-funded prospective cohort studies and found that self-reported functional impairments and physical frailty were robustly associated with substantial additional healthcare costs in older adults even after accounting for claims-based measures of multimorbidity and frailty. The authors also found that claims-based models adding functional impairments and physical frailty outperform models based on claim-derived indicators alone, resulting in more accurate cost predictions. They note that persons with functional impairments or physical frailty compared to those without these geriatric syndromes had higher costs not attributable to claims-based predictors of cost, ranging from additional costs of $2,354 to 11,770 per year for functional impairments and from 6,172 to 8,532 per year for physical frailty. According to the authors, their results suggest that assessment of functional impairments and physical frailty may improve identification and characterization of older adults likely to require costly care and aiding in the development and targeting of interventions aimed at reducing costs. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you go to annals.org to read some of the new articles I've mentioned and return in two weeks for more Annals of Internal Medicine highlights.
Thanks to Beth Jenkinson, Andrew Langman, and Bernie Turner for their technical support. Brought to you by GSK. Learn about commercial coverage for Shingrix, Zoster vaccine recombinant adjuvanted, by visiting coverageshingrix.com.